Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I've founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Alex Goff, who has been at the top of the squash leadership circle for 20 years with the Professional Squash Association, or more commonly known as the PSA. In this episode, we cover the various phases of growth for the PSA, from a small three to four person team to now over 40 employees, teams of contractors, and still growing. Alex shares some of the important milestones and decisions that the PSA made along the way that were crucial in paving the path for where the tour is today. These include making a huge investment in Squash TV, which if it hadn't worked out, could have bankrupted the organization. Then there was the merger of the men's and women's tour that helped them achieve parity and prize money at all major events, which is unique in the landscape of sports. And more recently, we dive into talking about the landmark deal that was struck with Infront Sports Media to help take the sport to the levels all fans would wish for. Then we rewind the clock and talk about his playing days, where Alex talks about the time he played for Wales in the Men's World Team Championships and had a historic run hosted in Egypt. In this episode, we split off the quickfire section and will likely do so going forward, but it's definitely worth checking out because it was one of my favorites where Alex shares some of the things that he does to stay focused that helped him immensely both as a player on the tour and now as CEO. It was a pleasure to have Alex on as our guest and glad we got one of the many conversations we had over the years now on the books. Quick thank you to our sponsor, ProSport LED, who actually has some very interesting developments going on. They are strengthening their partnerships within the racket sports world. They are partnering up with Padel Plus to bring Padel courts into the United States and the UK. And just like their LED lights, these are premium quality courts at great prices. What's also unique about Padel Plus is their canopy roof structure that has all of the great qualities of getting an outdoor playing experience, but you have the dependability. You can play your match regardless of rain or snow. So if you know of anyone interested in lights or Padel courts, please go ahead and put us in touch. Reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. 
Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and I'm delighted to have our guest on today, who's someone I've known for quite a while now, and we'll dive into that. But it's a pleasure to have on former world number five, the current CEO of the PSA Tour, and that is Alex Goff. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get this one on the books because I was thinking about this is you and I have known each other almost going back to 2004. So we're we're coming up on mm. our almost 20th anniversary and we knew each other when I was working on the event side in the Winnie City Open in Chicago and you're on the playing side. But then we also got a little bit more involved uh, working in the front lines or in the trenches, so to speak, with the squash administrative side. And um, I was thinking, I was like, it feels like one year working in those trenches is like two or three years on our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you feel, but you have been at the helm of the PSA since 2009, getting the role of CEO. <laughs> when you think back to where it was then, what's the recollection that comes to mind? <clears throat> yeah, I think the I think the analogy of one year seeming like about two or three is definitely right. I'd probably in those early years I'd probably put that at about five because it does <laughs> feel like twenty, thirty years ago. And then when I think back to playing days, that's just just another person altogether. And in the in the dim and distant past, unfortunately, although they were they were great days, and I, I look back on them very fondly, it just seemed like an awfully long time ago. Yeah, well, and I should also say that you've been involved at the steering the direction of the PSA tour actually since 2002 with your involvement of being on the board of directors. Yeah, that's, yeah, that also seems a long time ago. So the, yeah, that was kind of, I got voted on at the end of, I guess, December, 2002, if I, yeah. my memory serves me right. So that was probably around about a five, five and a half year process of, of initially coming onto the board as a, and, and lots of players were always in this mode. Lots of players were always disgruntled. And I think that was, that was me back in 2002. And rather than being, just staying disgruntled, I thought I'd try and do something about it, which led to a kind of five and a half years on the board before then transitioning into a staff member in the in the middle of 2008. Again, seems like a very long time ago. <laughs> I know. And what I'd love to do is kind of give a before and after of what was the office of the PSA like back in those days? Like how many people were working there? Where was it? How was it working? So I, I think going back to the sort of, I guess, the board days, we just had a couple of years. In fact, it was two years. I think we missed two world championships. So that was kind of then the motivation at the time. I think it was myself, Tony Hans, I think Graham Riding at the time kind of went, right, you know, we really do need to try and see if we can help make a difference here. And that process kind of, I guess, we started to get it going a bit through that time, but it was it was difficult. There was lots to do. There's always been lots to do. And, and I think when I then came into actually on the staff side of things, we had a really small office in, in Cardiff, which I was very close to because obviously I, I used to live in Cardiff back in my university days and, and at the start of my playing career. So I was actually really familiar with the office and Sheila, who ran the office, I'd known since kind of 93, I think. But there was Sheila Cooksley, a couple of part-time ladies, Alison, Cheryl, Anna. And then in the middle of 2008, we brought in a new CEO, Richard Graham. I kind of applied for the job and I, I had to recuse myself from the board to, to do the interview, which was then kind of awkward, I think, for, for, right, for the people right. on the board, as as awkward for them as it was for me. And uh, it, it fell to Ted Wallbutton, who kind of was, was roped in to help the process to uh, to tell me, the, tell me the fun news that I hadn't got the job. So kudos to him because that wasn't a fun call, I'm sure. Um, and in fact, I came in the next day to, to then carry on the interviews for the two candidates that were left. So Richard came in in the middle of 2008 and 
as has always been the way, especially sort of back in those early days, it's a role where there's just, there was a phenomenal amount to do. So unless you're yeah. kind of living and breathing it, you know, and, and hugely passionate about the game, it, it was just never going to work really. He was a good guy. He, you know, he was, he just was a bit overwhelmed, I think. Um, well, and he was also coming from, he had a sporting background, but it wasn't in squash, right? If I remember right. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he, 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 he was really sort of, he was a really good people person and he was doing a lot of work where he was trying to get, you know, new things going and new tournaments and, and, and meeting all the, all the, all the people at the time, you know, all of the, the promoters and whatnot. But I think what did him in a little bit in the end was really just the volume, just the volume of work and the day in, day out and the, you know, 24 seven nature of it. Certainly at that time. I mean, it hasn't really changed now, to be honest, but certainly back then when we were trying to sort of change the direction of everything and really get more involved in in the inner workings of the tour it was just too much so i got thrown the reins in uh february i think february 09 kind of which lasted six or seven months and then and then i sort of then came in early 2009 and at that time the office was still in cardiff and probably a staff of, right. was it three to four or including yeah that's right yeah yeah it was it was as i say it was then it was kind of myself and sheila uh, and three part-timers really Howard Harding was was the media person, so he was kind of, I guess, the the one consultant on the books, and uh, that was it. Which is, uh, and we'll go through more of the history of how you got there, but just to kind of paint a picture of where you are more today, and one of the challenges uh, and opportunities with the, the the tour is just how global you are. I mean, it's always been amazing to me that you have to be uh, as mindful of the Asian market and being responsive to them as you know somewhere to like in uh, in the U.S. So. It is a 24-7 global market that you're dealing with and to get the staff up that level. So fast forward to today, how would you describe what the resources are available for the, the PSA tour right now? So staffing-wise, we're kind of a decent combination now of kind of full-time staff, mostly based out of Leeds. So we're in the sort of 30 to 35 range on the staff side of things in the office. And then um, as with people like yourself, who's, it's fantastic to have you sort of on the team and on the consultancy side and that we've probably got another you know, five, six, seven, eight, I think. Uh, and that's not including kind of the squash TV side of things. So it's, it's kind of ever growing really. And it's, that's one of the harder things to keep track of at the minute really is, is as we are growing, you know, making sure that we're as efficient and everyone knows what they're doing and clear and what they're doing and, and happy with what they're doing. That's, I guess, a new challenge that we never thought we had before where we were just kind of, I guess, responsible for literally putting everything, putting all the fires out and answering all the emails and that sort of side of things. Now it's definitely turning into a, a much bigger business that's will hopefully continue to grow as, as 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 everyone does a really good job which they are doing yeah i mean there are distinct core competencies that the psa has done i mean broadcast comes top of mind and the media marketing side as well as the tour and operations so it's really great to see the the core competency growing out the team growing out and it's a really exciting to be part of i would love to because that's kind of where you are today but i'd love to go back to you're in this role <laughs> <laughs> you now just had the the first CEO kind of not make it through the line. And now you're up in front of the line and you're like, you're steering the ship. When we were talking through this, there's kind of like phases to this. Like, so like the 08, 2011 phase, then the 2011 to 2015, and then certainly 2015 to kind of today. And so talk about those early days where you're like, hey, we have aspirations of getting almost to where we are today. How did you go about doing it? Yeah, good question. So when I, when I sort of think back to that phase, certainly right at the start, and, and like anyone, when you come into a role like that, you really want to put your stamp on it and you really, you really want to make a difference. But some of the challenges we had at the time were, 
getting it out there onto that kind of, you know, you mentioned the broadcast side of things. We were always struggling with a very sort of chicken and egg situation of not necessarily being able to afford the TV side of things, but we really knew we needed it in terms of, well, one, getting it to the sort of core fans and two, getting it out to the wider kind of public that don't know squash quite so well. And so we had to take a few risks at the start. Squash TV was at the, was at the heart of all of that. We had great support at the time and we, and we continue to have great support from uh, Ziad Al-Turki, our chairman, who, when we put some sort of business plans in place, were quite high risk in terms of the trying to really accelerate the turnover you know it was like we had to invest in invest in websites invest in broadcast invest in kit trying to get all those things out the door so that we could then break that chicken and egg cycle so that we could really improve the broadcast and therefore start improving the tournaments so that was the thing that broke the cycle right at the start i think that 08 to a, to a sort of yeah sort of 09 through to 11 where we had to make those numbers work in a very short space of time or frankly we would have bankrupt the association to went from having <laughs> from having that kind must of, have been I nerve-wracking guess. signing that contract right yeah yeah it was uh i instantly went gray overnight <laughs> or through the space of that first 12 months lovely they had a lovely brown dark head of hair uh and then it was instantly gray because it was very stressful and we and, and i mean all joking aside you know the the promoters at this time were great as well. You know, they all kind of had to buy into that. You know, we weren't just just trying to broadcast it better. We were trying to make the events better and make them look better and stuff. So there was just a whole ton of work to do in that kind of regard. And and we we made everything profitable, I guess, overall from a PSA point of view, pretty quickly within a year or two, which we had to do. But it's put us on a good footing for the next few years after that, where Again, we sort of solidified, start to grow the team out from probably 2012, 2013, gradually started adding in PR and comms and then growing the tour team and, and all of the teams started to grow pretty sort of organically around that sort of time. And then I guess the sort of 2015 kind of watershed was the real kind of game changer was bringing PSA and the WSA together. And that was another kind of game changer, really, that was a ton of work and a ton of kind of convincing from all sides, really. You know, the players were great because it ha- it meant we had to get agreement from the men's side of things and the women's side of things. It's when, obviously, then when Tommy became involved as well to strengthen things up <clears throat> with sort of myself and Lee. And obviously, you've worked with Tommy a ton. So, you know, it was great having somebody of his sort of capability come in. And there was a lot of hard work through that period to get to... I guess the big things then were around kind of parity and prize money for men's and women's and, and, and those kind of big ticket items that, that we kind of still stand by today. Yeah, that, that was definitely one of the key points for us, really. One of the things throughout the kind of growth of the PSA, and certainly the, the merging with the men and women, which just made so much sense on so many levels, and but it was challenging on both sides to make sure that it was a good deal, that both both parties felt comfortable doing it. Uh, not a deal per se, but it's like, I think there was, Absolutely. there's always a risk of when you're coming together. It's like, it's not just what you might gain, but it's what are you giving up? And there's more fears involved than in either direction. Right. And really that's helped propel us. Yeah, no, for sure. You kind of had, I, I, yeah, the, the, the nervousness from the men's side of things was that their prize money would be diluted. And, and, and we had to sort of, you know, say, look, you know, the bringing both together will make the whole thing worth being worth more and, and be able, we'll be able to drive it further forward than, uh, you know, just just alone. And from the women's side of things, they, you know, they were nervous of being left on the sidelines. And, you know, we'll care. we were the men's store initially, and that's where our passion would kind of lie. So I, I think quite quickly, 
I hope quite quickly everyone kind of realized that we just wanted the whole sport to grow. So men and women being equal in that side of things and, and paying equal attention to both was the right thing to do. And very quickly, I think we were sort of, it was validated when you have sponsors like JP Morgan come along and they're very insistent that there will be parity kind of almost did the job for us really in that regard. And that's, and that's been echoed throughout pretty much ever since that kind of 20, 2015, 2016 kind of period. It's one of the things I try and figure out ways that where has squash distinguished itself from being a leader within the sports, the ecosystem of sports. And I think both the merger of the, the men's and uh, women's tour, which, you know, tennis hasn't done and certainly golf hasn't done. Uh, and then parody and prize money that those are two ways that as a sport, I think we can be proud. But I'd like to go back a little bit to, because one thing I don't think the average listener might understand is how the PSA works within the ecosystem of squash. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of ways, there's there's a true partnership within that, right? Where there's the, the tour itself, but then there's the events, then there's the sponsors and all that. So, you know, I remember having discussions with you and certainly prior to the merger, I was doubling every conversation because I'd have to have it with the PSA and that I have to have it with the women's tour. And, and suddenly it's like repeating itself. Right. But talk a little about your strategy during that period where you got the broadcast up and running, which was, Hey, we have a core competency. Now we can now bring value to the events. But one thing that was kind of missing was the, the predictability of the schedule because events were going on and off. So how did you guys go about tackling that? Good question. I mean, I, I think that's always ebbed and flowed. I think the one of the pressures when we were certainly when we were talking to the broadcast companies were that they, they, they wouldn't take squash at all until we got that scheduling. What's the schedule for the season? What's the schedule for the year? They wouldn't even enter into conversations until, you know, right, we've got these 10 great events or 12 great events or whatever the number was sort of through that season. This is the level that they're going to be at. You know, we're going to broadcast them all, et cetera, et cetera. So we really had to and again, work really hard with the promoters and they were great in that regard. And, and and we had a period of time where it was it became really kind of consistent. You know, you could really hang your hat on, you know, US Opens and Tournament of Champions and Canary Wharf, those sorts of events. And I think then we kind of got the confidence in the broadcaster to know that it was a deliverable product. And then, you, you know, you had to make sure you were doing all the satellite correct and delivering all the stuff online. There was just a ton of stuff to do in terms of giving people confidence. I guess the thing that the thing that we're still striving towards and, and, and we're definitely getting better at this, we certainly were up until kind of COVID hit, was was offering up more and more value to the promoters. So trying to take on more responsibility so to make it easier for, you know, US squashes of the world and the John Nimics and, and and again making it, you know, Hong Kong open, Hong Kong squash, making it a bit more we'd turn up with all of these things and it was a lot more, I guess, stability across the whole thing. And there's still a ton more that we can do in that. And I think that's going to be part of our next part of the evolution really is how to just keep offering up more and more value to the events. Because when you go back, when you go right back to kind of, I guess, when I was playing and and, and, that, and that period of sort of PSA, we were very much a, you register the event, we'll take your fees and then, you know, wishing you good luck on your way and best yeah. of luck. Um, and that would be how it would kind of operate really because we just didn't have the resource to, to to offer anything else up. So I think as time kind of carries on, even from now, you know, we want to get much more involved in events so that those deliverables are the same kind of, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out, so that those event levels keep kind of coming up. That's kind of next on the hit list, really. And also extending that to players, you know, right. where there's a lot of value we can add towards individual players because there's a lot, just as events are kind of left up to their own devices a little bit, so are the players. And already yeah. I can see 
quickly we're course correcting to change that. And we're unique that you and I have an understanding of how these events come together. I just don't think the fans know that this really is strong collaboration. It's multiple parties coming together. And where the PSA, like you said, it was almost like, here's the rule book and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, now it's the the value proposition is dramatically different with we can do broadcasting, we can help with media marketing. Um, there's just a slew of other services that's being added, which is which is exciting because I think it's the common goal to just see the sport grow. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you say, certainly on the player side of things, the more and more that we can give them, you know, services and help and educate them and, and put software in their hands to make their help them with their social media, things like socially, where we can upload a ton of media so that when they come off court, you know, either them or their teams can then push that to social media. Any of those sorts of things will ultimately help, you know, them, us, and then the sport trying to become that kind of better and better shop window, as it were, kind of to the sport, really. So I do want to talk a little bit about, and I'd said this when I saw the news come out, uh, this was almost a year ago with the PSA called it a landmark deal. And I definitely think it was the most historic moment in squash that probably wasn't fully recognized. Uh, I think a lot of people would focus on the Olympics. And certainly if we ever get that, that's a historic day. But my thought on this was, well, the steps to get there is we needed this uh, kind of deal and this kind of partner to come on board to help us get there. And what I'm talking about is the deal with Infront. And so yeah. that was my assessment. What was your take on the deal with Infront and what that means for where you think the sport can go? Yeah. And interesting that you sort of say that it, it probably, we certainly didn't shout it from the rooftops and we probably need to come back to it to kind of, I guess, tell people what the deal was, what it will, will hopefully mean and what the potential of it is. I think one of the reasons for that was that we kind of worked on all of this kind of going through the fun times of COVID. So to suddenly jump up and down and, and just say, oh, isn't this great? Look at look, look at what we, in our heads, look at what we've done. But while players still weren't playing and tournaments were still struggling, it's the timing was kind of weird because we'd worked on it all through that period of time when we had a little bit more downtime, even though it was quite sort of stressful for everyone. It actually did enable us to really engage with, with in front and the guys over in front because I, I guess people within sports marketing would know who they are you know they're you know they're 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 an img level kind of sport marketing firm img would probably be the you know the one that everyone would know or nearly everyone within sport would know in front probably less so but they're at a similar sort of level and i think with all the things that we've tried to do sort of back in the day since lee and myself have been doing stuff and now tommy and you know all the help from sort of ziad is ziad would have had countless conversations with a ton of sports marketing firms and every single time it was the, the answer would be yeah 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 we can yeah we can help and there would just be a very big price tag attached to that, which we could never afford. So the sort of narrative got slightly changed in this one in the, with hopefully the potential of things that we put together in terms of how we structure and everything in front of seeing the value and actually investing in a commercial entity that we've created, Squash Media and Marketing, that's still majority owned by PSA and therefore the players. But it's much more of a commercial arm that can ultimately be invested in, um, which is one really big positive. And then the second really big positive is just the fact that in front are now a a really solid partner and sort of an expert partner that can, in essence, kind of, you know, widen the, the scope of everything that we can do over the next seven, eight years or however long that it will kind of carry on for. And the early signs and all the work that we've done with them already has already been sort of hugely positive 
a bit more in the background, but all stuff that will hopefully materialize as, as, as we're now kind of coming out of COVID and, and all of their kind of hard work is starting to look pretty positive. So yeah, I guess going back to your original point of it might have flown under the radar a bit, it, it probably is something that we should and will revisit in terms of sort of pushing that out again, I think. And now the time's a little bit more appropriate. But I think that makes a lot of sense because it's also, um, these things take time. And I know on all sides, we want this to go faster. And, and unfortunately, it's just not possible. I mean, just yeah. to even get the, the the deal was signed, but then the creation of legal entities, getting the financial systems up and running, merging the teams so there's an education level so the teams know how to operate. What's the best way of getting that done? Who are we targeting? Great. Well, we have some funds that we can invest in technology. Well, what's the strategy of the technology? So these things do take time. And so I, I've been fortunate that I've seen these kind of nerdy deals, like I'm, what I'm able to read and they're like, oh, where could this go? And I, I'm already yeah. seeing it play out a year later. And I think I think fans will really start seeing this probably this maybe May, June, July timeframe. I think they'll start to get a sense of things starting to change. That would still even be early, but the players already seen. You mentioned socially, which for anyone who's not up in their social media game is this is an enterprise level tool that enables players to just post on social media far more effectively and easily. So, I mean, those are some of my observations. I don't know if, you, if there's anything more to you would add. Yeah, I mean, that's a really accurate summary of, of sort of where it is. And none of that is kind of sexy or glamorous. It's all stuff that's in the <laughs> no, background, you know, it's no. all like, yeah. Know, so what have you, so what, so what have you been doing today? And people are like, yeah, but certainly in the background, everyone's working incredibly hard and it, and it does feel like, soon people will be able to sort of see it you know and i think the second half of this year will be hopefully the start of that in terms of new kind of ecosystem and the digital side of things that that you're very close to and and the team's close to you know we brought on some new kind of personnel that are really kind of driving that forward with anan's team and and again that in front deal has enabled us to to start that investment we'll probably go into that kind of investing money and probably starting to lose money again for a little while before we really kind of drive forward and grow everything again you know as any kind of startup I don't know, we're kind of in that. It feels like we're in a bit of a startup phase again. That definitely resonates and it definitely feels as though new possibilities are on the horizon and how can we make the right investments to better the sport. And I, that's definitely going on yeah. internally. It will be exciting to share. And I know because you basically have to oversee this entire operation, trusting good people like like Lee Beachill and Tommy Burden and, and everyone else on the team. But is there anything as taking that hat off as a CEO and you are, I've seen this about you, like you're a squash fan, <laughs> like first and foremost. And, you know, is there anything now that if you're a fan yourself and you kind of know the plans of what's coming out, what would you be most excited about? That's a good question. What would I be most excited about? Do, 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 do. Yeah, I think, I think, well, one of the, one of the aspirations or one of the ones that we want to definitely do more consistently, we have a few great events. And, and without, I don't want to leave any out, so I probably won't name any. I, I think really trying to make sure that we kind of deliver those sorts of things or get everyone up to that those kind of levels is something that we want to do yeah. and then really improve on that. So yeah, there's always lots of, we always have lots of conversations around people talk about tennis and golf and whenever those Wimbledons are mentioned or, you know, going to a you know the masters or whatever in golf their events and it's, it's necessarily just about the sport. It's about what's happening around it. And I think squash events have never really captured that. I think we've always just been very squash, 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 which is great for the sort of core audience and the fans that really want to watch that and, and understand the intricacies. But we want to kind of make it a little bit more <clears throat> more accessible, really. 
so that people will take their families and we'll go somewhere for a beer and a meal afterwards or, or you know, really go there for a day out rather than just sitting behind courts and, and watching four to eight matches until your bum's gone numb and you can't you can't see anymore, which is what some core squash fans will do. I'd be I'd kind of probably be one of those. But we <laughs> want to make everything a little bit more kind of accessible, I think. You know, really kind of get some new people kind of into squash and watching squash. Because again, we're all squash fans and we all love the sport. It truly is a brilliant sport. I think one of the interesting things, and this always happens when we start to get into that sort of mode, and you'll have found this a hundred times over with the US Open and the Windy City Open, is that every time you take someone new to an event, they're, they're kind of blown away by what the sport has to deliver. I, I don't think I've ever, I, I don't have ever heard, t- taken someone or heard of someone going and, and going, meh, yeah, that, that, yeah, it was okay. When they actually physically yeah. see it and they're in the venue and they watch the sport and they see the men and women playing the, the levels they are, yeah. always 100% blown away. So again, we're then sort of, I guess, with the outward kind of marketing or with the other stuff that we've got to do, it's a case of trying to get that across a bit more and get more people kind of really excited about going to events. I will name one event because it it definitely does this better than any event on the tour and and they've now become quite well known for it is is the Nantes event where Mm. they... It really isn't necessarily a big squash market. Lots of people play squash around, you know, obviously France and Nantes and whatnot, but they they do a phenomenal job of getting lots of people from the town and the region that have never picked up a squash racket. They don't even know what the sport is. And consistently over the sort of the additions that they've done so far, have got people there and they're regularly sold out. So it's trying to replicate those sorts of things, I think, is going to be pretty key going forward. And just to paint that picture, if anyone's not as familiar with the Nantes event, so it's in France, and I believe it's been done in a, a theater, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, they moved it around. every time. Yeah, yeah. They moved yeah. every time. And um, it also it started off as a 25K level, so like... Uh, 10. 10K, so out of the gates. This is just showing how to yeah. build an event of where it, it's easy to look at, even look at Chicago, and like, oh, it's one of the largest prize money events versus I remember it being also a 20k and on a standard court so yeah building up the fan yeah 5k because I played it as a 5k right 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 yeah (laughs) well but but what you're what you're talking about is building up the fan base and then how can we make it into truly a fan experience and aiming for those who don't look aren't familiar with the sport to really grow absolutely yeah What, what do you think that the um to to speaking of the group in france like what do you think that they are doing that is unique to help build out the fan base there they always add something else to it so there's that element of entertainment so whether it's bringing in some djs or dancers or just some sort of you know theatrical kind of show there's always another element there that they're trying to sort of bring people in and 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 yeah like like i say so sort of turning it into a bit of a going there for the evening you're not just going to sit down and watch four matches of squash you know you can have some nice food and you can have a few drinks and and there's other things around it and and everyone is well kind of taken care of to have a good time basically and go away like they really have had an enjoyable kind of evening and i think the marketing of that and the way that they involve the town or the city sorry itself is how they get that going and now they've done it for a number of years obviously we missed a year with with covid but or two years they built up that reputation so now there is actually that kind of appetite for people outside of the squash world to come along so we could you know trying to replicate those sorts of things is you know it's not straightforward but we've certainly got to try and you know learn from that well it's brilliant and i i agree i think um the more events we build up that just engages fans the better and 
I, I think there's a lot of the athletes alone are remarkable when you see them perform live. And I do think there's something to the glass court that is architecturally engaging. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. What is this? And people want to get close. So, and we need to build Indeed. on everything else. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So how are your squash courts looking these days? Are the ball marks starting to add up? Do your courts need some attention and care? Well, in the U.S., there's a new solution coming your way. Pro Sport Court can be your one-stop shop for all your court care needs, from standard cleaning, painting, floor sanding, all the way up to lighting upgrades. Pro Sport Court can have your courts looking like new. Reach out to squashradio at gmail.com to learn more. Now back to our show. Well, before we move on to talking a little bit more about you, mindful that another key player we mentioned briefly is, um, and who's been at the helm with you is Ziad. And, you know, just taking a, a little bit to talk about him and his role that he's been involved in, it's so great to have someone of his enthusiasm, his passion, and certainly his knowledge and his resources. But talk a little about that because I think people don't always understand the role of what a chairman could do to help be involved in growing a sport. When Ziad first became involved, he wanted to put on a major event. Um, we'd never had a major event in Saudi. He kind of lives between England and Saudi, so he was in, in Weybridge in Surrey in the UK. So he got talking to Danny Lee originally. And, and he, his first comment was, you know, these players are amazing. He loved the players. He didn't really know much about the tour or how it all fitted together. So his initial involvement was, I want to put on a big event, which he then did the Saudi International. And he really kind of pushed the, I'm trying to think what the numbers were at the time, but he really wanted to drive the prize money numbers up. And in terms of kind of almost kind of putting a bit of pressure, if you like, in, in, a, in a positive way, <laughs> I'm not sure how positive it was definitely received, but pushing the, putting the pressure on of, I'm going to raise the prize money and hopefully everyone will start to catch up. Um, which ultimately then started to happen. So he's, he was very sort of much, like you said, like the rest of us really, a huge squash fan, thought what the players were doing was incredible and just thought that they deserved more. And I, which I guess is at the essence of, of everything that we're trying to do as a player body. It's everything we try and do is to make the sport of squash more appealing and to the masses to, to want to try and become professional. So he was kind of at the forefront of that really, um, which I think I was on the board at the time rather than, rather than working. What it was then, it was like, right, well, this person would be fantastic. You know, Ziad would be perfect as chairman, you know, and he was close to a number of players at the time and he was always talking to them about what they should do. And like you say, a real kind of fan that had this huge passion. He was in countless, countless meetings, certainly right at the beginning for a long time, really until we kind of, I guess, got going a bit more in terms of trying to always bring help towards sort of merely initially and then just the wider kind of stuff, you know, how can we get more sports marketing and how can we do this and how can we do that? which is why he was beyond delighted when we announced that we were having these discussions within front, because that's one of the things that he'd been, you know, a huge believer in since he was chairman in sort of 2008. That was really a bit of a watershed moment for him as well, I think, knowing that we kind of finally managed to snag somebody that was of that kind of ilk. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, shift a little bit more into your background and your playing career. And a good transition question here is, I'd like you to quickly contrast Alex Goff, the CEO, and then Alex Goff, the tour player. Like, how would people maybe describe those two different personalities? Oh, wow. Cool. That is putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah. As a player, as a player, yeah. I think I, yeah, I probably had different guises as a player all the way through the year. I mean, when I certainly when I started, 
which was straight out of university in 93. That really is a long time ago now. I, I guess my ambition as a player at that time, or I guess my personality as a player at that time was just, I just wanted to give it a go for a couple of years and I had no great ambitions on, you know, I'm going to be the next world number one or, you know, obviously players go into it with different outlooks or beliefs. So it was a lot more fun, I guess, not necessarily taking it massively seriously. And I don't mean that in a sort of a, just a frivolous way. I just mean, I, I didn't think I was ever going to be world number one. And I think I definitely enjoyed myself on court and, and just enjoyed the process of playing and improving. Transitioned then probably into... Crikey, this is a career now and I need to pay the mortgage and had a young son, Jaden, come along in, in 1996. So suddenly then it turned into a bit more of a serious, like, <laughs> I need to pay the bills now. So probably less fun on court, a bit more serious, probably a little bit more irritating, <laughs> <laughs> a bit more talkative to people. Definitely in my later later years, I think people would always roll their eyes and, and just say, <laughs> and just be a little bit like, oh God. Funny enough, I don't talk a lot off court but on court I used to talk an incredible amount so I'm not sure whether that's yeah I guess today if you were comparing the comparing the player then to say me as CEO of PSA I just yeah I let Tommy do most of the talking now to be honest he's uh (laughs) he's as you as as you'll know he's a very good talker and loves talking so I just kind of uh take the back seat on that one a little bit more now probably a bit too much sometimes but (laughs) yeah yeah so it sounds like you're keeping the fire inside is that what I'm I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. I was a very determined player. I think I did genuinely enjoy it more than most on court. And that's the bit I miss now, really, is that kind of, I guess, the fun of of competing and trying to get through various challenges. I was never, it wasn't, you know, I used to have training partners in like, you know, Simon Park or Marsh or Whitey, or there was quite a few that sort of went through Nottingham. We would have very different kind of practice games, I think. We used to play play Whitey. It used to just be great fun all the time. We used to try and just hit stupid shots all the time. And then you'd hit Parky and it would be a bit more serious. And then you'd play Marsh and then it'd be really, really serious. So it just <laughs> you sort of go through these different phases. And then I think that sort of transcended into the way I sort of played. I used to take a few too many risks sometimes and actually try and enjoy playing slightly crazier shots. It's not quite as uh, trick shotty as someone like Daryl has become. But I used to like, you know, the you know, top spins and double-handed flicks and that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, it, 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 sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously getting to uh, world number five is some things were certainly going your way. That's a huge accomplishment in any sport. But what I'd love, because mm-hmm. I think where a lot of this kind of comes to uh, a culmination is probably around the, the 1999 time. And what that sets up is when for the men's world teams, you're playing for Wales and you guys have a historic run getting at that event talk a little bit about what was different about that year than other years for wales well i guess part of well in inverted commas partner in crime david evans he'd started to do really well on the world tour probably just a tiny bit after i'd started to do okay so in that in that 99 period i think i was ranked pretty high so sort of middle of the top 10 something like that and dave was was probably in the 20s but playing about the same level that i was around that time so i was at one day was at two and there was nothing between us, really. In fact, in practice, I used to barely get a game. But obviously, with it being a three-man team, if two of you were on fire then you know, and, and playing well at the same time, you, you sort of had a chance against anyone, really. But there's a lot of things kind of had to go your way for, for, for that to happen. And, and that tournament turned into that. I think we'd, we'd played a couple of world... I think that was my fourth world teams at that point. I played in Karachi in 93, where I was dreadful. 
uh, and, and when we were dreadful, I don't think we got anywhere. I can't even remember where we got. Then we were Cairo in 95 and Dave and I were both in that team as well. Malaysia 97, similar. So we'd had a, we'd had a lot of experience together. Um, and we had Chris Robertson as our coach and yeah, we just, it was just one of those weeks where we both were, we both hit a rich vein of form at the same time. Ironically, I think I lost in the first round the week before <laughs> in the, was in, this when in, the individuals in, were in the world open. Yeah. 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 I'd lost the week before first round played dreadfully it was, I think, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I was ill, but that's probably an excuse. Was that just to get more rest days? Was that probably, strategic? yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just one of that. Yeah. We played England actually because we played England in the semi-finals. Ultimately, we also played them in the group, and we had this kind of love-hate relationship with England at the time because we'd sort of we were pretty sort of matey with you know Parky was a good mate at that time, and you know and PJ was a good mate. In fact, you know we all knew each other really well. But whenever there's an England Wales thing, it always gets you know quite sort of comedic really in terms of you know an us and them mentality we'd had a couple of uh, funny instances earlier in the week where we were winding the english up a little bit more than we should have done so when we ultimately... what do you mean by that <laughs> well it just uh, yeah without going into it well you kind of need to i guess yeah our coach and their coach weren't the best of mates <laughs> yeah so chris robertson and is that putting it mildly yeah they, they 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 didn't see eye to eye on a couple of things um, like if they were passing each other in the hall would they acknowledge each other's existence? Probably not at that time. No, <laughs> no. So yeah, without laying the blame too much on, on Robbo, <laughs> which I'm, yeah. which I'll try not to do. So basically we had to play them in the group games and we ultimately, and we'd had, we'd done this like a few times before and it, lots of teams have done it against top teams where, you know, you're going to lose, you've got a group game. Are you going to kill yourself? You know, you've got two other matches that you really right. need to win that you can win. So under kind of Robbo's and strokes, like, look, guys, you know, don't try too hard today. Nothing doesn't mean that much. You know, we'll be fine. We'll we'll get through to the next kind of rounds. Just 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 make sure you win the other two, okay? Right, fair enough, fair enough. Meanwhile, Dave and I just decided that was the day to we have to go and get our laundry in Cairo, which turned into a near 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 death experience in a cab that broke down in the middle of a highway. Anyway, we ended up nearly being late for the match. I turned up to the Cairo National Stadium. Phew, we've made it. Me and Dave sitting sitting outside, just sat on a wall, just sort of giggling away about nearly getting run over about 10 times in, in the middle of Cairo. And uh, Robbo comes diving out, very stressed. Can you just, uh, they want you to be by the court. You have to be by the court or they're going to claim the match. Stuart Courtney's going to claim, they're, they're, they're adamant they're going to claim the match. They're so strict on that, yeah. Very strict, yeah, very strict. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why but they are <laughs> i'm not sure whether they think you're going to suddenly not turn up or anyway for whatever reason yeah. and then dave used to enjoy winding robo up at the best times anyway so he was like well you've told us not to try so if they claim the match surely that just means we just really don't have to expend any energy so why don't you just let him claim the match to which robo sighs and just rolls his eyes and just thinks oh no this is making this gonna be this is just a lot worse than me <laughs> so uh trudges back in to sort of say well no he didn't say anything actually let them sort of stew a little bit and so anyway about 20 minutes later dave and i walk in to to find greg tippins i think it was was on court against the number three we kind of look over and you could pretty much see the see the steam coming out of stuart courtney's ears really at these two idiots that that were just you know sort of wandering in and just being a little bit too arrogant but we uh yeah it was it was it was it was all done in good jest i had a giggle with it with parky and pj afterwards but we then took that forward into the semi-finals when we ultimately then played them and the atmosphere was 
pretty tense because Stuart Courtney wanted blood at that moment in time. So that kind of almost amused us even more, to be honest. And what was the the lineups on that day? So I played I played PJ. So I think PJ was I think PJ was three in the world. I might I not I can't remember where I was, a bit behind that. Parky was four in the world. And Dave played Parky. Uh, and I think their number three might have been someone like Chris Walker, who was probably about seven or eight in the world. So there was like three, four, and seven, three, four, and eight, something along those lines. And Parky will, I, I, I know he remembers this performance, but Dave put on the most ridiculous performance I've ever seen and beat Simon in about 25 minutes. He was, he was, wow. he was literally unplayable. Um, Parky just, yeah, came just, yeah, he just didn't, he just didn't know what was happening really. Cause it was just one of those performances that I'd seen many times in practice when I played him cause he'd done right, it to me right, enough. Right. So I knew, <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew how Simon knew felt at the time really. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, yeah. he's on his, on his day. It was just phenomenal. And then I played PJ who was also a little bit, well, he was a little bit renowned and he will kill me for saying this, but he did have a bit of a glass arm sometimes when he played for England. Mm. Uh, so I managed to sneak a sort of 3-1 win against a not particularly brilliant PJ on the day. So we managed to, for the first time kind of ever, I think, managed to take take England out. So it was, yeah, it was a pretty pretty fun victory, really. And it sets up a historic moment in the sport of squash, where it was the first time that Wales had ever made it to the finals, but also Egypt. This was their right. first time, their first team finals. Yeah. No, in Egypt. True. In Egypt, yeah, which which was again, which was probably a little bit tough for us at that time, especially with with Barada and his, uh, you know, the sort of form he was going through and what he was like on court, particularly at that time, which wasn't fun. With two thousand Egyptians in Cairo Stadium, kind of baying for blood, which they were, and they nearly got. <laughs> right, right. But, but they were a bit too good on the day. In fact, Barada was way too good at the start against me, and I was too loved down in about five minutes. Um, <laughs> Managed to claw it back and was actually thinking that I might do it at one point. I got back to the fifth and then, yeah, he was a bit too good in the fifth. He, a bit too clinically in the fifth. So I was unfortunately came off worse there. And it was a bit unfortunate, really, because Dave was on such a rich vein of form. He'd have played, he played at Omar Alborolossi, but we'd kind of, we were done at that point. They were a bit too strong at three. So we, we were never going to kind of sneak three. So unfortunately, uh, we didn't quite get it over the line. And we have, I'm sure your average squash fan these days has a sense of how big squash is in Egypt these days. So, and that was the, what we can point back towards like the times when really Egypt started embracing squash as like, as a national sport almost. Yeah. What was it like on the ground with Egypt making the run to the final? Yeah. I mean, well, you're absolutely right. That was kind of the start of it. The few years previous to that with the Alaram, I think it kind of, we started there in, it was 95 or 96. And, and the press, obviously, all around being a big newspaper and the press around, you know, you had Mubarak, the president, the infamous president at the time was a huge squash fan. And and you had Alaram pushing it. And then you had Barada, just Barada turned into an absolute national hero, kind of from nowhere, really. And every time he did anything, he was in the press. He was a bit like a sort of footballer, you know, iconic personality, really. And it started driving this huge kind of press just everyone started talking about squash. He really was the beginning of it again. And so I think a lot of the players that, that, that play today, you know, many of them sort of turned up as kids, you know, I think it's quite funny, you know, people like, you know, the Ali Farags of the world were turning up and watching this, you know, this superstar play. Um, and he had that kind of charisma as well. You know, it was all flamboyant. And yeah, so it was, it was an interesting time. It was an interesting time. You know, you'd turn up, <clears throat> you'd turn up in Cairo 
and no one would know. You, you, you travel around the world anonymously, you know, every single place you'd ever go as a as a lowly kind of squash player, I guess. But you'd be in Egypt and people would actually know, you know, if you were a top 10 player, they, they, they'd know who you were, which was very bizarre and, and very kind of special to that place. So, yeah, so playing the great Ahmed Barada in a, in, in a World Teams final was pretty interesting. But yeah, all all of that stuff around that those Alaram tournaments at the time were were crazy. You know, the crowds were were huge, and they were all just you know chanting. And yeah, it was he was he was an absolute god out there. Really, it certainly has led to this incredible sort of situation that we have now. With you know every every kid and every parent over there, you know, wants to wants to push their kid towards squash, which is fantastic for Egypt, fantastic for the sport. It's definitely a, a slight worry for everyone else in terms of the numbers game that's happening over there in terms of the freight train that they've got of, of, of kids coming through. It's, it's certainly going to be tough for everyone to keep up, I think. Definitely, we can point towards that as, as kick-starting up this uh, Egyptian dominance. And, you know, some people say that's it's not good for the sport or, or those kind of things. And I, I would say it's a natural ebb and flow of the sport. I mean, think of whether it's Pakistani or Australia or even England. England dominated for yeah. a long time. They were dominating the rankings and all that. So I think... Yeah, if it stimulates other countries to like, hey, we want that for us, and hopefully, go grab it. In, uh, in you know, with the March rankings that Paul Cole will send to the world number one. Absolutely, kind of- yeah. I mean, it's yeah, certainly in in the face of sort of how much competition from one country that we're facing, it's it's a phenomenal achievement, really. You know, in the first, you know, obviously Susan Devoy was the the first sort of Kiwi world number one that they've had, and and Ross Norman being the world champion, but. To have a men's world number one, it really is 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 great, and and I, and I know the press that that he's getting down in New Zealand and that area is, you know will hopefully be a real kind of not necessarily even just a kickstart because there is a lot of good squash down there, but you know a real kind of really good on the publicity side and just keep 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 them pushing and give everyone else hope as well to point to someone like Paul who's who's just just done this. It's an incredible journey, really. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, really, really is it really is a cracker, and it's going to be interesting to see how well he can defend it because everyone's now after going to be after him after March the first. It shows just how hard, how much work he's put into this. Where I don't think, certainly ten years ago, but even five years ago, I don't think I would have been picking him to be world number one. I just didn't think he he had that, and so to be proven, you know, for me to be wrong like that, and it's remarkable what he's done to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and it, and it, I guess it always squash is one of those sports as well where it, you do get that ebb and flow between you know the physicality side of it and and there was a patch where someone like Peter Nickel came through, you know Janch was at the top of the game and Peter Nickel came through and his he was a lot different stature to someone like Paul, but the way he played and how hard he played and mm-hmm. how far the court he was in terms of volleying and you know he just it was like oh the work rate was just insane you know and that, and that took it on to a real another sort of physical level and then you had the, the, the foil of someone like jonathan power come along that that was way more kind of pete won't mind me saying this but way more kind of skillful and deceptive and you know was really trying to counter that then you get the david palmer's come along and it's physical again then you get the rammies come along and it's right. so, so we're getting that constant kind of you know how you know i think that is one of the most interesting things within squash it's like you know there's no you can get my size or Gregory Gauthier's size being a great yeah. squash player, and then James Wallstrop, who's you know about a foot taller than me, and 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 completely, you know, you get these all different shapes and sizes, which you don't actually get in hardly any other sports, really, where you get that differentiation between you get an enormous range of physicalities yeah. that can be good at the game, 
you know, and now you've got Paul Cole versus Ali Farag, for instance, and you look at their two body shapes and you're like, how are they both really good at this sport? Because they could not be <laughs> any, any different. They couldn't play any different. 100%. They couldn't look any different. And, 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 and yet, you know, there's kind of nothing between them. So you, I think it's super interesting to to sort of see that play out, really. And if you're coming along as a youngster, you can always kind of point to somebody like, oh, I quite like playing like this person or that person or this girl or that woman. Or you can you can you kind of you get a natural affinity then to to who you want to kind of emulate or play like. And it's yeah, it is literally every sort of shape and size really in terms of how you do that. So yeah, it's it's yeah. it's going to be an interesting one for sure going forward. Another uh, fun duo for me about that aligns is John White and Terry Linku, right? Look at the different attributes they have, the different physicalities. Like those are always absolutely, yeah, fun ones from back in the day. Well, Indeed. before I transition to some of this, the quick fire sections, and this is a little bit hard of a transition, but the Goff family has had interactions with fame, and <laughs> what I'm setting up here was a a Daily Mail article that you got made aware of. And uh, for people who may not know the Daily Mail, it's kind of, well, it's it's a newspaper or online. And how would you describe the Daily Mail to listeners? Like it's kind of like it New York Post meets. Uh, if you described it to most people in the UK, most people like the Daily Mail readers are not very well liked, I don't think. But that's, okay, probably, yeah. not, that's probably going to alienate everyone that's ever read it. But yeah, I would say that's. Well, it's a yeah. little sensationalism. <laughs> they sensationalize yeah, the things. Yeah, they okay. do. Yeah, All they right. Do. So now, now we have a sense. But anyway, so I'm setting this up and I'd love for you to take it from here. But the Goff family suddenly in this Daily Mail article and, and tell us what happened and how you found out about it. Yeah, I, the way you've set it up is as though I've I've done something really dodgy, which I haven't. Oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 I can occasionally get into trouble, but not on that sort of scale. Anyway, so this was uh, back in the day. So when Claudia Sherman worked for PSA, Claudia did a ton of work on the on the tour side of things. And I think me, uh, Lee and myself were, were out in Chicago having our, our meeting with uh, with the Walter Group, actually, when, when you would have been around and about. Around and about. So anyway, yeah, cut a long yes, story actually, short. Yeah, so 2015? It was, yeah, it was 2015. 2014. Yeah, yeah around there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's about right. And uh, right. Claudia fired over this article via email, and she's like, um, "I'm just looking at this article in in the Daily Mail. Is this Lydia? So Lydia's my daughter. She was 16, 17 at the time. And uh, so I open up this article, click the link, and the first person I see in there is not Lydia. The first person, I, the first two people I see in this article, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I'm like, what? <laughs> really trying to get my head around the what the picture that I'm looking at and then I kind of scan across the picture and lo and behold Lydia is stood next to them so <laughs> I quickly get on the phone to my daughter I'm like is there anything that you're not telling me was my first question to her <laughs> via via text or well it wouldn't have been whatsapp then but via text message or something quick quickly the message come back it's fine mother mother knows what mother knows da, 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 da. so so very quick sort of jump on the phone i'm like you really are gonna have to explain to me how on earth you're in a picture with angelina jolie and brad pitt so as it turns out through, through various bizarre circumstances she'd she'd actually ended up in a relationship with maddox pitt and my first finding out of this information was uh was where it was where in a, was where where a lot mail. of the world found out too 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, anyone that was sort of, I guess, cared at the time, but obviously their their lives are pretty well documented. And so, so yeah, then it ended up in this rather bizarre year of me trying to extract information about what it was like having dinner with the dad in inverted commas, as she kept calling him because she refused to call him Brad and and Angelina. They were both filming, I think, in the UK at the time. And this kind of, it was a bit of a, about a year long kind of episode of security picking her up and whisking her into London and them going out on fancy dinners and going to all of these kind of, you know, the Brits and Kensington Palace and all this fun stuff. So she had a pretty fun, fun year of it all. She, uh, yeah. And, and no, I didn't meet them. <laughs> I never, <laughs> never got to meet them. I'm sure she signed and she ended up signing all sorts of agreements about what she could and couldn't do or say. She, she kept it very, she kept it all very sort of close. You know, no one at school knew, for instance, she was, oh, she wow. was in the middle of doing her, uh, GCSEs, I think at the time or just after no one that's known at school knew, you know, there was nothing on social media. And yeah, I used to, every single time she went to see them, I'd be like, and what about this? And what about that? And I was like, I was like the geeky, <laughs> the geeky <laughs> fan who wanted to know, know the inner workings of this life. And uh, yeah, she, it was uh, pretty, pretty fun times, I think for pretty interesting times for sure. And, and supposedly they and, were lovely the whole time. And um, no longer together. Is that? No, unfortunately not. No. No, I keep I keep pestering about, you know, when when's she gonna try and rekindle that? Mainly for sort of, you know <laughs> I, I would like to meet them basically. So Yeah, right. You could always <laughs> yeah. play the angle and be like, look, yeah. it'd be great for squash if Brad was playing yeah, squash. Exactly. Or right? Exactly, like, wouldn't on. it? Yeah, yeah, we'd be we'd be we'd be trying to roll him out there every two minutes basically. But uh yeah. <laughs> I think that ship has sailed. Well, it was I uh, appreciate you sharing that and I, I do remember you actually because you're kinda like <laughs> you slid over the phone, you're like, What is it what is this about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the article exactly, yeah. and i'll put a link yeah. in in the in the blog about this i just want to thank you for your time and everything that you have done from the sport both from the player's side but also i i think a lot of times people uh don't fully understand what it takes to move a sport forward and it's it's like lifting mountains or moving that where it's it's not quite as clear to how that happens i've been fortunate to see how this does work and I want to thank you and the rest of the team for everything we've been doing and this next decade, I think, is going to be potentially a golden era for uh, for squash. No, thanks, Connor. No, I appreciate that. No, it's been a pleasure, pleasure doing it, and thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. And yeah, let's hope all the PSA stuff keeps moving, as it, I'm sure it will over the next few weeks and months and years. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for your time. Cheers, Connor. Nice one. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.